so it got real after lunch today when four jurors were chosen. Yeah, I'm not sure that anyone was really expecting so many to be sworn in so quickly, but it was kind of a turning point. Yeah, I think everybody in the courtroom was like, whoa, what just happened? And then the four of them were sworn in and they walked out and you could just sort of sense the gravity of the moment. I mean, these people are going to have to, you know, isolate themselves from all media, from social media, have four to five weeks of their life taken up in this trial. And they're making this incredibly weighty decision. And this is the point at which, if they break any of those rules, we're going to have to declare a mistrial and start all over again. So it's pretty heavy. In all, 10 jurors were selected, eight women, two men. Coming up on Date by Day, the Nick Hillary trial podcast, circumstantial evidence was a big deal today. Yeah, the issues of race and prejudice also came up. And then we also started to see, you know, what does a jury look like in a small community? I'm David Summerstein. I'm Lauren Rosenthal. And I'm Britt Hansen. And you're listening to our podcast about the trial of Nick Hillary. He is charged with second-degree murder in the death of uh, 12-year-old Garrett Phillips in Potsdam in 2011. And we are outside of the St. Lawrence County Courthouse where today's proceedings took place uh, right after uh, we finished for the day. It's about five in the afternoon. It's hot. It's The sun is already sort of getting into the golden hour. So today was like part civics lesson. It was the time for the judge and the lawyers to sort of lay down that whole beyond reasonable doubt stuff, all the stuff we've learned um, in civics. Um, And it was also a time for uh, the lawyers, the attorneys on both sides, to start sort of raising some of the issues that they think are going to come up in this trial when they were sort of talking to the potential jurors. Yeah, and a lot of that had to do with what kind of evidence they would need to see in order to be assured that the state did its job and, and proved guilt beyond that standard you're talking about, David, the standard of a reasonable doubt. And so the line that they drew was between DNA evidence and forensics and all the really super detailed stuff you see on TV, like in CSI, uh, and something like circumstantial evidence. You know, somebody being close to the scene of a crime, having a weapon, for instance. That was one of the examples that came up. You know, you see a guy with a stick standing over someone who's bloody. What do you assume about that situation? And, and both sides were really asking the potential jurors to think about whether circumstantial evidence would be okay for them. It, and it was the prosecution who brought this up first, uh, William Fitzpatrick. Uh, he said, um, you know, hey, what do you think of this, jurors? Um, what do you think of this idea? If this is cir- uh, a case that has a lot of circumstantial evidence, this stinks. Does anybody think that? So... I think we can draw that there will that the prosecution will be leaning on circumstantial evidence um, in this case. And when we talked with um, the defense afterwards, Earl Ward agreed with that. And it's important to note that uh, the prosecution uh, hasn't been giving press conferences uh, during the trial so far, so um, we can't get a comment from them. 
Right, and, and so one of the things that's sort of widely known and believed about this voir dire jury selection process is that this is when we really get to start to see how the defense and prosecution are going to lay down what's coming, sort of what are their cases built upon, and they're testing those ideas out with jurors, uh, potential jurors, to see how they respond to that. And that was one, you know, like you said, Lauren, um, there were anecdotes on both sides about circumstantial evidence, you know, for the prosecution saying, hey, you know, if, if everyone, if people come into the courtroom and they're wearing raincoats and they're all wet, can't we probably assume that it's raining outside? You know, and then the defense followed with this anecdote about, you know, somebody's laying out on the street and bloody and there's a person with a stick over them. Is that the only thing? Could that person who was standing there be the person who hurt them or not hurt them? That was sort of the question. They were laying it out on both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a lot of talk about the difference between having common sense and drawing reasonable conclusions versus the perils of jumping to conclusions too quickly. And I think that that is something, especially if there is a lot of circumstantial evidence in the case, yeah, that's going to be huge. Now, it was the defense team who first brought up the issue of prejudice. Uh, Peter Dumas, the uh, local attorney, I guess you could say, um, for uh, Nick Hillary, uh, raised the question of prejudice. And he talked about some of his own prejudices of growing up here in the North Country. And he raised the issue. And by the way, Peter Dumas is white. And he raised the question of Nick Hillary being Jamaican and Nick Hillary being black. And that was the first time so far in the courtroom we've actually heard mention of race as a factor. And it was really interesting. I thought the question that Dumas put to the potential jurors, it wasn't, you know, are you racist? It was a little bit more subtle than that. It was, does race affect the way that you treat people, whether it makes you treat them better or makes you treat them worse? And nobody answered that question in the affirmative. And, and Dumas really even gave them a second bite of the apple when he said, you know, we have two brains. We have a brain up here and we have a brain here in our gut. We have more nerve endings, he said, in, in our gut than in our brain. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, that's what he said. And he, But he said, how many of you have a gut instinct in your gut that says, quote, this just isn't the right jury for you? So he gave them another chance to think about this prejudice question and coming in with other biases before he gave them one more chance to say you know what no i'm not i'm not the one for this trial without actually having to answer the specific prejudice question and that was one of the that was one of the moments or maybe the moment for me as someone who's observing what's happening that really sort of made me stop and pay attention when he posed that question to the jury i was thinking whoa like what an interesting question how would i answer that You know, there are so many ways that that could be perceived, but just really thinking about the responsibility of being a juror as, you know, am I the right person to sit on this jury or is this the right jury for me? But at the same time, no one really took Dumas up on those opportunities. No jurors kind of recused themselves or disqualified themselves based on that. But what did come up and kind of brings us to the next thing we wanted to talk about 
what a small town jury pool actually looks like. Um, turns out that a lot of people who were called for potential service today had some kind of connection either to the attorneys who are working on this case, to the victims, to Nick Hillary. Yeah, to potential witnesses, former uh, police chief, Potsdam police chief Ed Tischler, who is now working in the district attorney's team. A lot of people knew him. And then there were plenty of other people who knew each other, who knew Garrett Phillips' family. And a lot of people also who have connections to law enforcement. One of the things the judge said almost every time when he asked the question, he said, hey, does does anybody here have ties to law enforcement? And so many hands went up and he was like, yeah, we are in the North Country. So that was also sort of a factor. So many COs are connections to corrections officers, too. And then the question did arise from both sides, both the prosecution and the defense of like, you know, if a police officer who is supposed to tell the truth all the time, if they take that oath and are called to testify, does that mean that they're automatically telling the truth? And that was a question that was asked of the juries, uh, the jurists as well. Another big question that uh, all the jurors were asked was, how much do you know about this case through media coverage, which has been going on now for almost five years? Yeah, almost everyone raised their hands and said they'd read at least something about it. And then actually, as it got later in the day, there were a couple of people who raised their hand and said, you know, all that I've read about the case does really influence me. And I don't think that I'm going to be able to, you know, judge fairly what I'm seeing in the courtroom just because of that. So that was two people who um, stepped out, a man and a woman. That just about wraps it up for the day. Uh, we did get a little newslet. Uh, that Judge Katina will be uh, issuing a decision about whether to reconsider uh, DNA evidence uh, you um, tested using a controversial uh, analysis called StarMix. We'll have more on that uh, when we get that decision. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at news at ncpr.org. And we are live tweeting during this. And you can follow us at NCPR. And Lauren, your Twitter handle? At Laurenthal. My first and last names kind of squished together. Without the Rosen. And I'm at BN Hansen. And I'm at David NCPR. And we'll see you next time. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Ciao.